This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with blessings and woes. Love of enemies, lives of mercy, of logs and specks, and built on the rock. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The media is tone deaf to the music of religion in daily life. It's pure, blunt, and I think pretty despicable politics to try to paint people of faith with the bigot label. And if they do that, then the IRS is empowered to take away the tax-exempt status of religious organizations that disagree. No one is worthless for whom Christ died. And of course, Christ died for all. We are not to make any distinctions based on social status or mental or physical ability or power or wealth or anything else. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the power, not you making some decision. I tell you, Christ has decided for you. Believe it, and it's yours. Families putting up their manger scenes from the outdoor nativity store, love, issues, etc. After Martin Luther's death, while the Reformation continued without him, the Reformers had an occasion to deal with a clandestine form of Calvinism known as crypto-Calvinism that had crept in and would creep in again. They decided to put together a series of what they would call articles, the Saxon Visitation Articles, dealing with the specific theological problems of Calvinism in their midst, We're going to continue our series on the Saxon Visitation Articles. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, December the 12th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon will join us to talk about the Saxon Visitation Articles. We'll get into the person of Christ. And then Pastor Sean Denzer will be in studio to look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary Advent 4. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. Just give us a little review of what we dealt with the last time before we get into the person of Christ. Sure. So last time we dealt with what might be called the presenting problem, right? The the problem with crypto-Calvinism shows up first in the doctrine of the supper. And so they needed to clarify exactly what they were teaching about the supper. And if you remember, it was just really brief and really short. It said basically, hey, Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. We take him at his word. We don't have to figure out how it works. We just know that that's what he promises. And therefore, that's what he gives us in the supper. And this is what received by people who believe it. It's received by people who don't believe it at all. The one to blessing and salvation and the other to judgment and condemnation. And then uh, that sort of summarized that. But then they're getting ready to move on to the other areas that they sort of surprisingly found themselves disagreeing with Reformed Christians there, you know, the Calvinists. And uh, specifically, this is kind of like, you know, the fallout of the the, the Beza-Andrea discussion where they began to realize, oh, man, 
this thing has tentacles that reach in numerous directions. So the next place that they went was the person of Christ. One of my seminary professors years ago said that, you know, they thought they had a bit of chipping plaster in the ceiling. They opened up a hole and they realized they had water up in the attic. And then they realized there was a hole in the roof. And the more they dug, the more they realized that this difference over the Lord's Supper was not accidental or inconsequential. No, I mean, that's a beautiful analogy, and it ties exactly to the the, the process by which they began to realize, uh uh-oh, we actually are having fundamental disagreement about fundamental articles. And uh, you don't get much more fundamental, Todd, than the person of Christ. Their first statement here, in Christ— There are two distinct natures, the divine and the human. These remain eternally unmixed and inseparable or undivided. What are they saying there? All right. You know what? Before we do, can I just back up to pick up the line bit? You want to read it? The line right before that? Of the person of Christ. Yeah. And then the. The pure and true doctrine of our churches on the article of the person of Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to lose that idea that they were not afraid to say, hey, This is the truth about Jesus that's taught in our churches. We don't have to schwaffle on this. It's just not like, you know, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe, maybe, I don't know. This is for sure. And that's kind of the the, the attitude that they lay down all of the visitation articles on. And the reason they're so sure is because they're just pulling stuff from Scripture. So we just read, in Christ there are these two distinct natures, the divine, the human. These remain to eternity, unconfused and unseparated. So those two words are key. Unconfused means they don't get mixed up with each other. The humanity is not transformed into the divinity. The divinity is not constrained by humanity. And furthermore, they cannot be separated. You can't pull part aside and and say, well, this is the divinity and this is the humanity. But you can sort of see them working together in tandem. And, uh, you know, the other day on my podcast, I just wrote the show for Luke 8, verse 22 and following, where Jesus calms the storm. Think about what that one story shows you, okay? First of all, Jesus gets in the boat. And he asked them to go to the other side of the lake. But what does he do? You remember? He goes up to the top of a mountain to pray. No, no, no. That's after. That's on the other side. Oh, that's after. So, I mean, in the boat, what does he do? Oh, I believe he falls asleep. Yeah, he falls asleep. Why? Hey, people always tell us this, right? They're like, uh, I can't believe that really sitting there and yakking is, is going to be real work to tire you out. Uh-huh. Try it for a day. So Jesus has been teaching, you know, all day long. And he's been doing these miracles. And the people have been around him demanding stuff from him nonstop. So when he gets in the boat, he's wiped. You want to see his human nature? Look at him. He's tired and he falls asleep. There you see his humanity just shining through. But then... When the storm threatens to swamp the boat and the disciples, even even the fishermen among them, are freaking because the boat's taking on water. They're sure it's going down. They wake him up and they say, you know, master, master, we're perishing. And what does he do? Remember what he does? He rebukes the wind. So he tells the wind, knock it off. And the waves, stop it already. And immediately there is a great calm. And uh, (laughs) the disciples, of course, freak out and they ask themselves the question that surely they had the answer for already. And that's, 
who is this? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? But right there in that one account, you can see exactly what the Saxon Visitation articles mean by saying two natures, divine and human, and they remain in him to eternity, and they're unconfused, and they are also unseparated. So when he tells the storm to be quiet, he uses his human voice because it's his voice, and his voice has divine power to make the storm behave. The next statement here is, these two natures are personally so united that there is but one Christ and one person. Yeah, one God, one person. This is aimed at um, any kind of incipient Nestorianism, which is what they began to suspect the Reformed of actually harboring. There is only one person. That person, by the way, is the person of the divine son who assumes in time from Mary's womb a human nature, joins it personally to himself so that it becomes his. So then there are not two persons in the one Christ. And so go back to the boat. Do you see how each nature operated in a way that is appropriate to it, but they had to operate together, right? So the human nature snoozing, the divine nature commanding the wind and wave, but both doing what they do through the person of the Son of God. So what they're seeing here in the crypto-Calvinists is an implicit denial of the personal union, essentially saying when they adopt this notion that the finite cannot encompass the infinite, they're saying, well, those two natures are related to one another. And I don't think they would have said they're two Christs. Mm -mm. They never would have said that. Nor did the historians. No, but they, they find themselves forced to say, because they go by that kind of philosophical maxim, they find themselves forced to say that the human nature joined to the divine nature cannot, in that union, be present. Yes. And, and in fact, that you, you can just stop at the cannot. Because, you know, for a Lutheran, there's the non-starter, right? You cannot lay on Jesus a cannot. But the Reformed did indeed say that the human nature cannot be present everywhere. It's impossible. And they could do that, the Lutherans could only assume, by separating the human nature from the divine nature. It's when the two are separated from each other that you can say, well, he can be here with one nature, but he can't be here with the other. So, yeah, that that's exactly right. It's a very peculiar, I mean, you mentioned Nestorianism, which was always explained to me as the natures are closely associated with one another, but like two boards glued together, glued. Yeah, they, right. they never really have any union with one another in one Christ, right. which These, really does end up with two Christ. Come the, on. It, 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 it certainly ends up with two separate actions, right? But this this idea that there must be some other relationship between these two natures so that he's present according to his divine nature, but not according to his human nature in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, I mean, so if, for, for a Lutheran, we, the key was always that analogy which St. Basil first used of the iron and the fire. And once you've got that down, you see, oh, wait a minute, I see the iron, the fire never becomes iron. The iron never becomes fire, but the iron, the lesser element, if you will, takes on the characteristics and power 
of the fire that it's being immersed in. And so once they saw that, they're like, so what is it that his human nature wouldn't be able to do when it's joined to his divine nature? Not in itself, not by its own power, but by the power of that nature to which it has been joined. But isn't this a bit of kind of reverse engineering, starting with the premise that the human nature is incapable of, thus joined with the divine nature, incapable of being present in the Lord's Supper, you kind of have to work your way back to a deficient view right. of the incarnation. Right, right. I mean, and, and literally, as the Lutherans and the and the Reformed were discussing this, it, it began to dawn on the Lutherans, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't even have the same doctrine of the person of Christ going on here, do we? And I really think that came to them as a bit of a shocker. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part two of our series on the Saxon Visitation articles, talking about the person of Christ. He is host of the daily 50-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We'll be right back. Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 14 consecutive years. Please help us cover all of our expenses again this year by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2022. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. All theology is Christology. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Risen Christ Lutheran Church in Arvada, Colorado, we have simply become captivated by the hilarious notion that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save the losers of this world, losers just like us. We proclaim the biblical notion that God saves sinners. Embracing the historic liturgy of the church, we confess that we are just that, sinners. Visit us online at risenchristlutheran.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the confessional Lutheran dogmatic series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part two of our series on the Saxon Visitation Articles with Pastor Will Whedon, Assistant Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. 
Ah, Mary had a baby, sweet Mary had a boy, and heaven said, You name your joy Emmanuel, he will know you well. Good Mary bore a bouncing boy, and this is the way that it was. An excerpt from Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, a collection of 12 old Archbooks from Concordia Publishing House telling the Christmas story all the way through. It's a great gift for a child, grandchild, or godchild, ages 5 to 9, and you'll find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Well, here is the next statement, number three. On account of this personal union, it is rightly said, and in fact and truth, it really is, that God is man, and man is God, that Mary begat the Son of God, and that God redeemed us by his own proper blood. What are they saying there? All right, let's work our way through it and and pieces here. So first of all, just notice any of our listeners who were with us when we did the catalog of testimonies, you notice we've got none of that concrete, abstract kind of language to track our way through here. It's said just very simply, but clearly this is said in the concrete. So because of the personal union, it is rightly said, and it's also true indeed in truth, that God is man, which means that this man, God is this man, and this man is God. And if you think, well, that's not right, is it? I mean, did Jesus ever claim to be God himself? Like, well, yeah, uh, aside from doing all the crazy things that he did that proclaimed that he was God, you know that on Easter evening, when Thomas fell down before him, he confessed in John chapter 20, he says, my Lord and my God, and he says this after beholding the wounds in Jesus's body. So he is confessing the eternal God dwelling in in human flesh, my Lord and my God. He's saying that. And Jesus doesn't say to him, whoa, Thomas, what are you saying there? You're going a little overboard. He says nothing like that. He accepts that from his mouth. And he says, in effect, ah, you believe now, huh? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed, which I think clearly goes back to the Old Testament reference, right? It's not those who will not see me and yet believe, but those who have not seen me and yet have believed all the Old Testament saints who waited faithfully for his appearing. And then Also, Mary bore the Son of God. So, in other words, she's the mother of Emmanuel, who is God with us, the eternal Son. And she then is properly and correctly called Theotokos, or modern day, the mother of God. Or as Elizabeth said, when the virgin mother visited her in Zechariah, mother of my Lord. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And if you stop and think about Mary being the mother of God and that her baby is truly God, think about how this is celebrated at Holy Christmas time, right? I mean, Luther's great hymn from heaven above, this is the Christ, our God most high who hears our sad and bitter cry. He will himself our Savior be from all your sins to set you free. Stanza three of From Heaven Above. Or think about how he whom the sea and wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own Son, with us art one, doth join us and our children in our weakness. O Jesus Christ, thy manger is stanza two. Or highest, most holy, light of light eternal, which really is a rotten translation of the Latin. 
Deum de Deo, you know, God of God, light of light, right out of the Nicene Creed. Born of a virgin, a mortal, he comes. Son of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. O come, all ye faithful, stanza too. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark to Herald, stanza two. And then uh, what about now in a manger we may see God's Son from eternity, the gift from God's eternal throne, clothed in our mortal flesh and bone. Alleluia, stanza two of We Praise You, Jesus. And then finally, from east to west has the line, Behold, the world's creator wears the form and fashion of a slave. Our very flesh our maker shares his fallen creatures all to save. So looking at the, the events surrounding his birth, you're going to confess the person and work of Christ truly and correctly when you can say without apology, without any kind of, 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 of caveat, that Mary really is the mother of God. But on the other end, on the side of redemption, you need to be able to confess very clearly too then that God himself died and that it's with God's blood that Christ redeemed the world. The passage that Lutherans turned to without fail when they argued this with the Calvinist was Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's clearly the passage that they have in mind at the end of, of this uh, statement number three under the person of Christ. Christ redeems us by his own blood. And again, Todd, that shows up in the church's worship. I mean, think about how we sing and when I survey, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God, the death of Christ, my God. Or again, on the, the, the great uh, hymn on Good Friday, I always think of the German line, O grosser not God selbst ist tot. You know, O great dread, our God is dead upon the cross extended. So there we go. Very clearly confessed in the church's worship. Is the devil here in those caveats? Because I don't think, and I'll speak, I don't know, I cannot speak for Calvinists today, but I don't think Calvinists today, knowledgeable Calvinists, would say, deny that, saying that we are redeemed by the blood of God. Right. Or that I mean, Mary bore the Son of God. I don't think they deny those things, but is it the caveats that they attach to those things that walk them back because of their different Christology? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it'd be fascinating. Wouldn't it be to, you, we need to get Michael Horton on the show one day and ask, so, okay, how, I mean, how, how do you understand this? And I think as, as you look at the, the, the Lutheran refusal to back away from them, the Lutherans, far from wanting to put caveats on them, actually in the hymnody, especially in the hymnody, seem to push them all the way and to celebrate them like they are uh, banner truths. And indeed they are. I mean, everything hangs on this, Todd, that God is born for me. Everything hangs on this, that God died for me. And I need to be able to say that it was God's blood that was shed on the cross to redeem the world without caveat. It, it, it is the blood that belongs to the person of the eternal son. The fourth and final statement in this section, by this personal union and the exaltation which followed it, Christ, according to the flesh, is placed at the right hand of God and has received all power in heaven and on earth 
and is made partaker of all divine majesty, honor, power, and glory. Why did they need to say this? Well, this is where they're tying back to the doctrine of the supper, right? They're making sure that you cannot miss that the exaltation of the human nature in Christ results in him actually being a partaker, a participant in all divine majesty, honor, power, and glory, which means he can be everywhere present with his body and his blood, just as he promised. Some passages from scripture that I think are really helpful here, and honestly, I have no idea what Calvinists do with them. Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? By the way, you can't really tell from the Greek whether that's saints or in the holy things. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. How does it end? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Ooh. So, you know, the, the, the argument was if he's at the right hand of God, he can't be here. And the Lutheran answer was, hey, the scripture says because he's at the right hand of God, he fills all things. Again, I want to be really clear, not in some sort of way like you blow, not like a blow up Jesus that just expands and expands and expands till he fills the whole universe. No, we're talking about an exaltation, which is beyond our ability to explain, but which results in Christ himself being near as he himself promised. I'm with you always to the end of the age. The way the old Lutherans put this is, Hey, he who makes the promise keeps the promise. The one who said that said it with human mouth and he said it into human ears. He's going to keep it with his mouth. He will keep that with his true human nature. Paul says pretty much the same thing over in Ephesians 4. Um, He says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens. That he, he the one who ascended and descended, that he might fill all things. And then As far as the divine glory being given to the person of the Son and the human nature in that person being exalted, think about Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they'll reign on earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, in other words, in his human nature, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth is all joining in, blessing and praising him. And the four living creatures, of course, say amen, and everybody falls down and worships. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part two of our series on the Saxon Visitation Articles. We're going to talk about baptism and why the Reformers here needed to explain Scripture's teaching on baptism in responding to the Crypto-Calvinists next.
this week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with blessings and woes. Love of enemies, lives of mercy, of logs and specks, and built on the rock. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. What does anthropology or the science of mankind, the study of mankind, have to do with Christmas? Well, it has everything to do with Christmas. As the December issue of The Lutheran Witness points out, to understand what man is and what it means to be man, we don't look to other men, but to Jesus Christ, the man. To subscribe to The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Continuing education for the confessional Lutheran. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. If you plan on doing some online Christmas shopping with Amazon, you can also help support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. Just go to smile.amazon.com, sign into your Amazon account, enter Lutheran Public Radio into the charitable organization search field, and click select. A percentage of your purchase will be donated to Issues Etc. Smile.amazon.com and choose Lutheran Public Radio. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part two of our series on the Saxon Visitation Articles with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. They take up in Article 3, Holy Baptism. The Lord's Supper, it's really easy to see the connection of the dots there, but baptism is a little more tenuous here. Why are they headed in that direction? Is it because they're headed toward predestination? No, I'm, I think it's actually because they, they dis- Andrea and Beza in their, their colloquy, I can't pronounce French, Montbellier, something like that. They sat down and it became very apparent that to the strict Calvinist, the sacrament of baptism actually was not saving. It was more like a sign of God's promise of an action that he does quite apart from baptism. So the idea that even a child of Christian parents would not necessarily need to be baptized or the the problem that a person who had been baptized could fall away. I mean, you're running here with the idea of, hey, if you're elect, you're elect. And what on earth is the sacrament going to do to that? You know, I mean, it it can't really change or alter that. And it doesn't really show whether or not you are elect or not. So this kind of thing was running in the background. Like you said, predestination is coming up, but it showed right away that the Lutherans and the Calvinists had a very different approach to baptism. This showed practically, I think I mentioned this before, it showed practically in um, Lutherans have always practiced what's called midwife baptisms. So if a child is born and 
it appears to be in distress and you can't even get a pastor to get there quick enough to baptize the baby. The Lutheran midwives were all taught, you just, you pour water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and you baptize the child right then and there. It was actually prescribed in most reformed territories to have lay women administer the baptism that way, ever. So all those kind of things filtered into the background as they began laying out what is the true teaching of our church about holy baptism. What do they have to say? Well, the first thing they say is, number one, there is but one baptism and one washing, not the kind that removes the filth of the body, but one that washes us from sin. So here they're really trying to get at this idea that there is a unity in the action here of baptism and of the inner cleansing of the person by God, the Holy Spirit. They are not two separate events. They are one and the same event happening at the same time. So their passage on this, of course, one baptism, you think right away of Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So there's one baptism. And the church has always taken that to mean um, not merely that there are not multiplicities of baptismal washings, but also that the one baptism is received once. Do you remember in the large catechism, Luther has a section where he says, what if a man, he uses the example of a Jew who did not himself believe, came and requested on false pretenses, Christian baptism, we baptized him. And then later that hour, he recognized, I lied to you guys. I'm sorry. And I really do want baptism. You wouldn't baptize him again. You tell him to trust what you first gave because the defect in his faith did not in any way affect the gift of God, which was given in the water of baptism. But you also notice this language here, not the kind that removes the filth of the body. That immediately evokes 1 Peter 3. Baptism, which corresponds to this, to Noah's Ark, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not getting you bodily cleaned up but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subject to him. Boy, if you want to hear some great unpacking of that appeal to God for the good conscience, you just need to read some John Kleinick. Dr. John Kleinick deals with this, I think specifically in the little book, Grace Upon Grace. He does an outstanding job pointing out the huge benefit that comes In your baptism, you can stand before God and you can appeal for this gift of a good conscience because of what Christ gives you there in the water. And what is it he gives you? Well, it says it's one that the statement originally that we're commenting on here says it's one that washes us from sin. So think about how Ananias will say to Paul in Acts, you know, what are you waiting for? Arise, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Or similarly, how Peter would say in Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So you got this huge scope of the promise here. One baptism giving you a washing, not of your body, but a washing that gives you the appeal for the clean conscience in your heart and that washes away the sin. And he's going to get to how it does that in the next little bit. By baptism as a bath of the regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, God saves us. 
and works in us such justice and purgation from our sins that he who perseveres to the end in that covenant and hope does not perish but has eternal life. Mm. So that baptism actually is the action of God which saves us. Not a sign of God's action which he does in some other way and that it's only reminding you of that kind of like <laughs> do you remember the whole discussion in the Lord's Supper about how it could be just a sign of something that's not really there? Same kind of thing with baptism. Is it a sign of a salvation that's not actually being delivered? The Lutheran said, no, the scriptures actually are very clear. God saves us through it. I mean, think about Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of rebirth or regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I think it might be the, I can't think of the name of the Bible that Pastor Otten used to like to praise a lot, Amer an American translation. I think that rendered that so beautifully by the washing that gave us a new birth and a new life. I love that. And by the Holy Spirit doing that. So that's what baptism actually does. And you might also remember that 1 Peter 3.21 said very specifically, baptism now saves you. So note that now. The now both means not like the ark. I mean, the, the ark was back then. This is how he's saving you now. But it also means up into the present. It continues to save you. It constantly works salvation by its great power. Another passage here that you don't want to lose to the person who perseveres in this covenant and confidence to the end. They are not lost. They have eternal life who perseveres. Because, of course, Jesus' promise was in Matthew 24, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember in the parable of the sower and the seed? There was the seed that fell on the rock, and these are those who believe for a time. But in times of persecution or testing, they fall away. So it is possible to indeed be a believer for a time. What matters is that you actually persevere in it to the end. And you can continually return to your baptism and rely on its promise. You think of 2 Timothy 2.13. If we're faithless, if we've turned away from him, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the promise of baptism continues. It holds. It's always reliable. You can go back to it any time, but we must constantly be returning to it and not wander away from it and so fall away from faith. Unlike the Calvinists, the Lutherans said, it is possible to fall away. Point three, all who are baptized in Jesus Christ are baptized in his death and by baptism are buried with him in his death and have put on Christ. They're drawing together all of these Pauline problems. Yeah. Yeah, you almost get the impression that they're like, okay, we're going to say, we're going to throw into this one little article everything that scripture has to say about the gift of baptism. So you have here, first of all, the, um, we're baptized into his death. You think about, of course, preeminently Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And similarly, in Colossians 2, he said, In him, in Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Beautiful promise there from Colossians 2. The language of being clothed in Christ, of course, is what Paul says in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on or been clothed in Christ. When we come back from this break, we'll take up the fourth point that they make about baptism. Baptism is the bath of regeneration because in it we are born again and sealed by the spirit of adoption through grace. Pastor Will Whedon is leading us in a teaching on the Saxon Visitation Articles. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're linked to Issues Etc. If you know a Lutheran high school or college student who plans to attend the 2023 National March for Life in Washington, D.C., encourage them to register for the Why for Life Conference January 19th Through the 21st, the conference is free to registered youth. The registration deadline is this Thursday, December 15th. Learn more at lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. It's the days before Christmas and the list is so long of whom to buy what for, so I'll help you along. Ad Crucem has gifts for all budgets and tastes. Our service is quick for shoppers in haste. Pop over to the website adcrucem.com for gifts focused on Christ where it's always belonged. Reminders of his work for saints in this world and his promises eternal yet to be fulfilled. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about our Why for Life Washington, D.C. Youth Conference. Deadline for registration is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S.org, Jay Krause at M-E-L-H-S.org. Old Theology, New Technology, you're listening to Issues Etc.
Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ Lutheran, Jackson, Mississippi. Faith Lutheran, Plano, Texas. Glory of Christ Lutheran, Plymouth, Minnesota. Lamb of God Lutheran, Papillion, Nebraska. Lord of Life Lutheran, Plano, Texas. Redeemer Lutheran, Fort Wayne, Indiana. St. John Lutheran, Forest Park, Illinois. St. Paul Lutheran, Hamill, Illinois. Trinity Lutheran, Louisville, Minnesota. And Zion Lutheran, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Saxon Visitation Articles with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Straight to at number four here, Will. Baptism is a bath of regeneration because in it we are born again and sealed by the Spirit of God, sealed by the Spirit of adoption through grace. What are they drawing upon there? Well, clearly, again, Titus 3, 5 is in the background, right? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But then he saved us, how? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You might remember a controversy we had years ago in our church where we had one of our church leaders very unfortunately say that Lutherans do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) And we had to say, um, excuse me, Lutherans most certainly do have and always have believed in baptismal regeneration. That is, that through the gift of baptism, the Holy Spirit bestows the actual rebirth of a person unto eternal life. So a passage that's obviously running in the background here as well, he's going to be more explicit on this in a second, is from John 3. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, you really do need a new birth to give you the new life of the spirit. And you hear this especially looking, I think this, uh, John, the John 3, Jesus was so shocked that Nicodemus did not get this because it's the rather clear teaching of the prophet in Ezekiel 36. Listen, I, God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my decrees. So here in Ezekiel, you have this clear picture of God himself stressing, it's, I, I'm the one doing this. I'm going to be the one acting through this, this sprinkling, this, this application of water, but this is what I'm going to do in it. I'm going to rip out your old heart of stone. I'm going to give you a brand new heart, a real heart, like I intended human hearts to be from the beginning, truly the heart of Christ. And he's going to do this by putting his Holy Spirit within us. All that's what's being confessed here under the fourth sentence under holy baptism. The fifth one, unless a person be born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus in 
John chapter 3. This is not intended, however, for cases of necessity. What does that mean? Yeah, this is where, like we say in the Augsburg Confession, that baptism is necessary, but not absolutely necessary, right? We're making a distinction here. St. Augustine put it this way, it's the contempt of baptism that damps. It is not the lack of baptism per se that damps. So if somebody says, well, I don't see what's so special about baptism. I don't think I need it. I don't think my kids need it. I'm not going to worry with it. That's a very different thing from the family that's on their way to church to get their child baptized, right? And they're in a horrible car accident and everybody dies. The child dies unbaptized, but it was on the way to baptism. Well, in the church, if God himself intervenes and takes away the opportunity before it arises, we don't say that that's a, a loss of salvation to that person. God himself intervened, and we trust that he who knows how to work rebirth through the ordinary means can certainly have extraordinary and uncovenant means by which he can work as well. So Lutherans, were very clear. We're not saying that all unbaptized babies are landing in hell. That's not what we've ever taught. And then the final statement on baptism, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and by nature all of us are children of divine wrath because we are born of sinful seed and we are all born in sin. Why do they need to drive home original sin here? Well, because you had this idea that rose in the, in the, especially in the Calvinistic communities, that children who were born of parents who had entered into covenant with God were already covenanted children, and therefore they did not need the, the washing of rebirth the same way that someone who's coming from the outside would. But the Lutheran answer to this was simply to quote Scripture again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, as Jesus would say, and we are by nature children of God's wrath. That's reflecting on Ephesians Chapter 2, listen to these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here's the key word, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. St. Augustine has a most beautiful little uh, treatment of this in John 3, where he notes that the wrath of God abides upon the sons of disobedience. He says it doesn't come to them. It remains on them because that's where we all find ourselves by nature. All of us find ourselves in revolt against the true God, and all of us are in need of the divine amnesty which baptism itself gives gives, and by which God not only just doesn't hold your sins against you, but even makes you his heir through Christ, brings you into his family, adopts you, gives you all kinds of great, great blessings. And of course, also in the background here, Psalm 51, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Can I add a personal note here? We, We just had so much joy over this in our family last weekend. Because my youngest daughter is adopting a a very sweet girl that's become part of our family already. But she got to be part of the Heavenly Father's family before she's officially joined into our family. She is baptized into Christ. And I told her, I said, this is a really special moment for you, child. You're going to be able to remember this your whole life, this moment of your baptism. I also was baptized as a young teen. I remember my baptism. And uh, I still remember my brother saying when they're 
you know, pour in the water. That's that's for you, dude. <laughs> and, and, and it was. It was a beautiful moment. I'm so happy that my granddaughter, she, so she's my, my newest granddaughter is my oldest granddaughter. So happy that she's able to receive that that gift of, of new life in Christ. It's an amazing thing. Next, I'm going to be talking about predestination or election, but we've already had the certainty of Christ's work for us delivered here in the Saxon Visitation Articles with this exposition on baptism. Why is the certainty of one's baptism so much better than speculating about one's eternal election as the Calvinists are forced to do? Well, you've just nailed it, right? Because it's a speculation. You can't know. There is no certainty at all in the matter of predestination. This is something hidden in God's eternal will. We can't search that out. That I mean, you go crazy even trying to, and he doesn't want you to. Instead, he's given you very clear, specific promises which direct you to the means of grace and tells you to hold tight to those promises, and he's going to actually deliver on them. It's far, far, far better to take the Lutheran approach and say, take God at his word, take him at his promise, and know that when it comes to uh, the mystery of predestination, we'll see how this all sorts out in the light of eternity. In this age, it, 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 it will break your mind. It's something that's from beyond our ability to understand. And uh, with about... 15, 20 seconds, what are we in a nutshell going to be looking at next time? I think next time we will finish up the predestination and eternal providence of God. And then we're going to flip because everything we've said so far are all the positives, right? But what are the negatives? What what are the false teachings that the Lutherans wanted to reject on all of these items? And I think we'll probably move a little bit faster, but we're going to go through the same list again. What's the false teaching about the supper? What's the false teaching about the person of Christ? What's the false teaching about baptism? What's the false teaching about predestination? I hope that next time we're actually going to finish up the entirety of the series on this little Saxon visitation articles. We'll see. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. Formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us on the other side of the break. He is going to be with us to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, We're coming up on the final Sunday in Advent in preparation for the celebration of Christ's birth. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The third commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in him, our true rest, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear his word and receive his gifts.
If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org.